in this series called Expansion, and I love this series because the, the, it's all about reaching people that are different than us, right? It's all about reaching out, and we've been looking and studying about the early church in terms of, man, when this movement of Jesus began, when Jesus resurrected from the grave, right, when he, uh, people literally saw him in resurrected form, and he said, hey, I'm going to empower you as my church, we're seeing, like, what happened? What was kind of the next steps in terms of, like, Jesus was like, I'm giving you my power. You're going to do greater things than I ever did. And we've been just kind of walking through this book of Acts where really we're seeing the acts of God work through his church. And it's amazing because God chose his expansion to the world, and he chose the vehicle of who? Imperfect people. And I know a couple weeks ago I talked about some things that imperfect, about imperfect people that bother me, right? How many of you guys know uh, each and every one of us? Not perfect. Well, one of my big pet peeves in terms of imperfection is when somebody screws up, like, my fast food order or a food order. Like, I don't know why, you guys. This just, like, irks me so much. Um, so I talked about a few weeks ago when, like, you know, I went to Golden Chick, and, and no harm done, but they forgot all the sauce, and we ordered, like, a family meal. Um, you know what I mean? So it just, like, got me. Well, we were just recently on vacation, and uh, so anyway, I got to tell you this story because it just, once again, it just it infuriates me. I don't know what it is. You know what I mean? Uh, we went to this coffee shop, right? And uh, my mom, we were hanging out with my family. They live up in the Pacific Northwest as we went to this convention in Seattle. Got to spend a little bit of time with them. And we ate at this sandwich place uh, on the way to go spend some time at a lake. And uh, my mom was like, yeah, they just have really great coffee, you know? Like, I love the, the coffee they had. So Callie and I, like, we ate our sandwiches. It was good. And it was like, okay, afterwards, like, we're going we're gonna to get some coffee, you know? Like, I don't mind spending a little bit extra money on some bougie coffee every now and then. I'm from Seattle. We invented bougie coffee. You know what I mean? Hallelujah. Starbucks. Everybody's like, boo, you know. Hey, whatever. I love it. Uh, anyway, uh, we got black coffee in the back. You know what I'm saying? Uh, anyway, uh, so we, so I'm like, okay, you know, and we ring it up, and I got an iced coffee. I'm an iced coffee guy, you know, make fun of me or whatever. I'm kind of like, if I'm going to pay for coffee, I can make hot coffee at home. Iced coffee takes a little bit more work, you know. You got to double brew it so it's extra strong so that when you put it over ice, you know what I mean, it kind of dilutes a little bit and tastes like normal coffee. Well, anyway, I asked the lady, I'm like, hey, you guys have iced coffee, right? And she was like, yeah, we do. And uh, I was like, okay. So I ordered an iced coffee. No joke. They didn't have iced coffee because anybody that makes iced coffee, you, you keep it chilled and you pour it over the ice. She literally handed it to me, and this is after about 20 minutes of waiting. Like, it took them forever, and I get basically this big old cup of what looked like just milk with no ice in it. So basically, they just dumped a bunch of hot co coffee over ice, and obviously when you dump hot coffee over ice, it just dilutes, and there's a bunch of milk and stuff in there, and I took a sip, and it was just absolutely disgusting. You know what I'm saying? And literally at that point, it took so long, and we were on our way that I was like, I'm not going to go back and like ask for a new one, and I'm going to have grace on this person, this imperfect human being who obviously didn't know how to serve my coffee exactly how I wanted it. But isn't there this things about imperfect people that just make you so mad sometimes? Come on, somebody. I know, I know I'm not the only one. You know what I'm saying? But this is the deal. That person, come on, that imperfect person, the one who doesn't obviously know how to make iced coffee, is a candidate for God's grace and his mission. How in the world, God? How in the world? Right? But this is what God's doing. God's taking imperfect people. The fact that you and I are imperfect people, and he's allowing us to participate in the greatest mission that has ever been accomplished or brought forth towards the universe. It's amazing. The creator of the universe empowers us to make a difference and take part in what he's doing around the globe, in our city, in our relationships, right? The same person is the same person he wants to use for his redemptive plans for the world. So we've been looking at several leaders that have been kind of pointed out, and I want to look at a key scripture, Acts chapter 6 really quickly, 
we've been in this series, we've been looking at how God's kind of chosen to let his purposes burst forth. So in Acts chapter 6, uh, there's a few guys and there's some issues going on and they're trying to figure out, we, the, the church is expanding, we got a big family going on, we need to figure out how to deal with all these issues. So we've been referring to the scripture, it says, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. You'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, and, and Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. So there were some practical needs, and the main leaders of the church were like, we got to focus on, like, spreading this goodness of God. So we have all these people that, these, these Hellenist widows that, that aren't being fed. So these guys stepped up and said, we'll do it. But it's so funny because we continue to read in the book of Acts, and these guys become heroes. Stephen and Philip, we read about their faith, and it goes beyond just meeting a practical need. We know Stephen gets filled with a supernatural wisdom and boldness to begin to just preach the word of God to the, to the Jews, to his own people, telling them the Messiah has come. He is Jesus, the one who breaks every chain, the one who has died for you, the one that gives your life freedom. But he's so bold, and he's trying to invite this family, this family of Israel, into the things of God. And, and they're so offended by all the things that he's saying and the way that God wants to expand this beyond Jerusalem, beyond their hometown, their place to be, their promised land, that they end up murdering him, right? The first Christian martyr, this guy who was just meeting practical needs, ends up having a ministry where he makes so many people mad based on what Jesus was offering to them as grace that they end up murdering him. He's the first Christian martyr. And then we have those seeds being planted, and then we got a guy, Philip, who we've read about, who begins to kind of expand that mission. Do what Stephen tried to do, those seeds that he planted, and he begins to let this go beyond the geography of Jerusalem. Earlier in the series, we talked about how the Samaritan people, these people that Jews hated, what did Philip do? He brought the goodness of God, this message to those very people. As Pastor John led us into last week, can we give it up for Pastor John who brought an amazing word last week? We see that Philip takes this message and breaks down the barrier of gender, right? Exclusivity. This Ethiopian eunuch, right, who was ready, who was amped, and just needed somebody to deliver this message, this good news that what Jesus had done. So we see the message of God beginning to expand through these different people that are bold, that are being oppressed, that are being killed for their faith and oppressed for their faith through Stephen and Philip. So we see all these different things, right? We see an expansion happening to the Jewish people. We see an expansion happening to other people. And then we're going to look at Acts chapter 7, 57 through 8, and we're going to learn about the new expansion that God's going to allow to happen in this narrative that we've been looking at. Earlier in this series, we looked at the scripture. It says, after, this is immediately after Stephen is murdered for his faith. It says, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Speaking of Stephen, we dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul, this prominent leader, this Christian persecutor, right? There's been an expansion to the Jews, the people of God. Hey, understand, this is your Messiah. There's been an expansion to other people, right? Other people groups that have been kind of pushed on the fringes that maybe haven't heard about what God has done for their life. But now we're getting to a point where God is beginning to expand to this type of people. The very enemies of God. I love when Jesus said, love your enemies, right? It, it didn't become this just like philosophy of like floaty, like, well, this is something we're going to hang on the wall. Like, we're going to have this nice frame thing in our home that says love our enemies and not actually ever do it. But we see early on in the church, God actually does what he says he's going to do. 
When he said to love his enemies, it begins to practically unfold in a very character who is persecuting the church aggressively. The scripture says not only men, but women were being dragged out of their homes. So the assumption is children were actually being a part of this. Families were being torn apart simply because they chose to be followers of this Messiah who proved himself to be true. This new way of life that was going to transform the world and flip everyone's world upside down simply on what he's done for us. The free gift of Jesus dying and giving us freedom. So I titled the message this morning this. Anyone to everyone. For our church family, these are two really key words in my spirit and in my heart. Um, because our vision as a church, um, we've been really investigating and saying, okay, God, like, what would you say for our church? What would you say is our vision? What would you say are a lot of different things? We went through a series called Family Matters, and we just talked about all these different things in this season and what we feel like God's saying. So our vision is simply that, is that family matters. We believe that as a church, we're going to be a family that wraps our, our arms around with love and grace as many people as possible. So our goal, like what's our goal? I feel like we really believe that's our vision that family matters, right? Like there's nothing like a tight-knit family that's built on love, grace, right? How are we going to do that? What's, what's our goal? And we've, we've made our goal, our goal to be this, that we're going to adopt anyone and everyone into the genuine and active love of Jesus. That's what we're all about as a family. Adopt anyone and everyone, Right? So I love it because, once again, this can be just something we post every now and then as a, as a scripture, as a sermon. It could be something we post on the wall when you walk into the coffee bar at our church and saying anyone and everyone, these key words, right? But we want to go beyond that. We want to understand what does that actually look like. And this morning, I love it because this story in the early church is going to illustrate what anyone means. On a practical level, what does anyone really look like? Because we see God's character to shine through in a really powerful way way as we study this section of scripture. So Acts chapter 9, let's, let's get to it. Verses 1 through 9. These are the verses we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, this is where we're going to be at. If not, follow along, along up on the screen. And here we go. It says, meanwhile, Saul, so this guy we know about, he's been persecuting Christians, right, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that your word transcends culture, transcends time, transcends to really a practical place in our hearts, in our time today, in our culture today. Lord, we understand that there's things that we can allow our hearts to grasp onto because your word is alive. Lord, your word is living and active as the scripture says. So Lord, we just want to receive what we need to receive this morning. Lord, we're all candidates for your grace and your love, which means we're also candidates to be transformed by something you want to deposit into our hearts this morning. So Lord God, would you allow the possibilities of anyone begin to burst forth in our hearts as we glean from what you want to speak to us this morning. 
in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. So we're going we're gonna to just break this down into little sections and try to understand and glean. And really, for me this morning, I just want us to, to, to grasp a few theological principles. Our ideas, theology, right? Our ideas about God and understand if this is who God is, how does this apply to us, right? Because God always bridges those two, two things together. Why did Jesus come? He bridged this idea of a God who could seem so distant and comes into the neighborhood, the very neighborhood of his people, and serves them and loves them. So Jesus always merges these things together. So my heart this morning is that we would glean things and understand that if there's things that we understand about God, God wants to bridge who he is into our lives and make a practical difference into our hearts this morning. Amen? Cool. So let's look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. It says this. Let's go back to the beginning here. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So here's what we understand with Saul, right? We got a, a major leader who is a major enemy to two major things, right? Jesus and the followers of Jesus. Jesus and his church. Jesus and the community of God that says, we've seen God do something in the middle of history, and we understand that it's a game changer in terms of the course of human history from this point on, right? So we have this major enemy. But we also understand that Saul wasn't just some, like, schmuck who was trying to, like, gather people together and cause a ruckus. This guy was highly educated. He was a younger gentleman, but we also know he had access. This guy was a part of the elite. We understand that based on the observation of knowing that he had access to the high priest, who in that society held a position that not anybody could just walk into the office of the high priest and be like, hey, I got some commands or I got some things I want you to take care of. We understand by the observation of this verse, this guy was somebody who was somebody. He was a part of the elite. He could come into somebody who had authority and power in the community and make commands and make threats to actually get some things moving. And the mission of the movement at this time was murder and take out and, and persecute as many Christian people as possible. The ones who have followed him. The ones who are following the way. The way of Jesus. This guy was somebody that could do a lot of damage during a season of the church when the church was absolutely vulnerable. But the cat's out of the bag this morning. We understand the billions of Christians that exist on the earth today. So what happened? What happened is remarkable, is miraculous as we understand that God meets Saul and turns his life completely around. But here's what I want to glean from the scripture this morning as we kind of just ponder these first couple of verses. A great biblical theology that we can gain from this section of scripture, understanding what happened next, is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign in the midst of humanity, in the midst of human history, right? Sovereign meaning that even in the big picture of things, no one is able to thwart or off-put God's ultimate plans for the earth. You can have somebody who's elite, somebody with a lot of human power, somebody who can walk into somebody's office with a lot of power to move things, to make movements, but guess what? It will not take the plans and the purposes of God off track. Yes, there's suffering in this world. Yes, there's micro forms of, of evil that run rampant and cause and affect our lives. But I love it because ultimately God's like, you got to understand this more than anything. I'm in charge still. I'm in charge here. 
The church is at a very vulnerable position. This guy could do a lot of damage, but I'm not going to let that happen. And we see pieces of God's hand working through humanity throughout the biblical narrative time and time again. A great biblical theology of God's character that we can understand this morning, church, is that he is sovereign. In the midst of people that are trying to get his plans off course, he is sovereign. So really, how does that affect a person who's like, I'm trying to follow God to the best of my ability. I'm trying to follow the way of Jesus. I understand I'm imperfect, but I, also, I understand in light of that, Jesus is perfect. So I'm trying to follow in his steps and his strides. So this morning, I got a question for us in light of who God is. It's this. How do you expand God's sovereignty today? How does in light of who God is and his sovereignty really cause your life to make an expansion of that that affects other people? Right? Because here's what's so interesting about it. God promises to give us a peace. This is what's so interesting about it. The, a peace that exists before an event and after an event, right? Because after the event, at this point in the story, we understand that Saul has some pretty gnarly intentions to, to pull off some very heinous acts. But we understand, and we're granted with a lot of peace because we understand that th those things are stopped. Those things become things that don't actually get accomplished simply because God is sovereign. But it's kind of like that relief. I know the end of the story, so that gives me a lot of peace. But I love it because we always reflect on the peace after, the relief after, the knowing, okay, God, you came through. Okay, God, you're faithful. Oh, I now have peace. But this is what I love about God's peace. He doesn't just promise the peace after the event when things actually look clearly in sight, but God promises a peace before the event. When things seem like they're out of control, come on, God is still sovereign. And this is what's so amazing. We live in a world, come on, we live in a world where some people, you watch the news, you read the newspaper, and you can get convinced by a prerogative of fear that everything's falling apart. But here's what the Lord wants us to do today, to expand his sovereignty, his goodness that touches other people. Man, he wants us to be people that are grounded in his peace, even when it feels like the world is falling apart. Come on, somebody. We are not going to be people that just react to the good outcomes and say, God, you, I have peace now. But we're going to understand in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of things getting off track, in the midst of a world that's breeding fear, 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 we understand that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of peace right now, in this moment, in this season, in this nation, in this world. God is wanting us to be rooted in his supernatural peace because it's different. Come on, somebody. It is different. And God is sovereign. We can place our hearts and trust God with who we are and understand that he is sovereign. There's no reason for us to be freaking out right now when everybody else is because we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Come on, somebody. That is the gift that God gives that comes out of the character of his sovereign nature. The world could be crumbling all around us, but we understand no one will thwart the accomplishes and the things that God wants to accomplish on this earth. No one. God is sovereign. Amen? Let's keep moving. Acts chapter 9, verse 3 through 6. So we keep moving to this narrative, and it says this about Saul. It says, as he neared Damascus, he's on a mission to kill. Modern ISIS of the day, right? He's a terrorist. He's a terrorist wanting to terrorize this particular group of people. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. God's like, nah, -uh. not my plans, not my church. Not what I'm wanting to accomplish. And he intervenes, right? 
Verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So it's really interesting because what's happening here in the scripture is something that throughout the biblical narrative actually happens quite a bit. Um, it's what we would call a theophany. Basically a vision or this experience of God. God's power and presence being manifested in a way where people's emotions are being stirred. People are, people's uh, senses are being stirred in a way where they experience God on a whole other level. So what Saul's experiencing is this thing that we would call a theophany. And as a Jew, you could experience and have an idea of the presence of God in so many different ways because in their Bible, the Old Testament, right, the first two-thirds of the Bible that we have today as their scripture, they look at it and they see stories of people experiencing God. You think about people like Moses, right, that when he spent time with God, that when he actually faced this bush that was on fire, like his face, and when he faced the Lord at Mount Sinai, this massive mountain, that there was so much glory that his face began to glow just because he spent time with him, right? We see all these narratives and these stories of God's presence, the throne room, right? We see the throne room and the picture and the, the majesty and the, and the prophet Isaiah talks about, right? In Isaiah 6, where, send me, Lord. Isaiah says as he responds to this amazing vision that God gives him of his power and his majesty. But I love it too because there's one particular one in Ezekiel that I think is when people think about God's glory and presence, this had to have been one that they thought about, that their heart was gleaning of when they thought about their, their passion about God. So let's look at Ezekiel chapter 1 verses 26 through 28. Ezekiel being a prophet who spoke on behalf of God and allowed God's people to understand and know what... What, what they were to do, right? How they were to live. So Ezekiel, it says this, Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. And there's this vision that Ezekiel's talking about giving to his people. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up. He looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So uh, it's amazing, right? If you were a Jewish person during this time, when you thought about the glory of God, when you thought about an experience with God, some of these things would come in your mind. Man! The glory and the majesty of what Ezekiel experienced. So you imagine with me for a second. Saul is having all of this zeal for God. A zeal where he's like, this is my God, and I'm going to eliminate any threat to my God. These people who are following this guy named Jesus, man, God, we're going to take them out. I want to seek your glory. I want to seek all that you would have from me. So he's on this road to Damascus. You can only think to yourself for a second that maybe, maybe he was praying to God. Maybe he was using this time and really interpreting this zeal for God by spending, by meditating, by saying, God, I'm going to seek you. I want to experience your presence. I have a zeal for you that I'm willing to go above and beyond to make sure that your glory goes to be known. And any threat is eliminated. And he seeks God. And what do you know? He has his glory moments. The glory of God begins to manifest and shine down on him. But in that moment, he has a big time realization. The vision, the glory of this man that was unknown in the vision of Ezekiel 
clarity begins to manifest. Who are you? He falls face down to the ground in the same way that Ezekiel does in the old days, right? No other posture he could take in the presence of God. And he asks out, who are you? And this God responds back to him and gives clarity on his character and his nature. He says, I'm Jesus. I'm not the one that you thought I was. I'm not the face that you expected. But I am the very one who you've been on the way to persecute. And it flips Saul's world upside down. Because he had all of these expectations of what God was like. He had a zeal to move and be passionate and be committed to a God in the right direction. And his trajectory gets completely changed when he realized all that zeal is going in the complete opposite direction of what he expected. The people he was going to persecute, Jesus reveals as the head of the very family that he's being introduced into and the one that he went to go persecute. Can you imagine with me for a second what that realization would have been like for this man? All of these expectations of what God is like, but clarity being given in a radical way. Somehow, these men and women Saul was dragging off to prison were Jesus' people, his family, his own extended self. What a realization. But I love it because we know if you continue reading, the legacy of Saul becomes a massive one in the church. Saul, actually, his name gets changed, which was often uh, experienced when people experience God. They often had name changes. You think of the prophets of old. You think of Abram, being, his name being changed to Abraham, the father of the faith, right? In the same way, Saul's name gets changed to Paul. And we understand Paul being a person who actually ends up penning what we would say one-third, about well, two-thirds of the last one-third of the Bible, the New Testament. Paul writes these letters to churches encouraging them out of this experience that he had with God himself, Right? We understand that Paul's story doesn't just end here. It's just the beginning of what God wants to accomplish and to do. As we continue reading in the book of Acts, we understand that Saul is the chosen vehicle that God chooses to be the one to spread the gospel and the good news of Jesus beyond just Jewish categories, but actually get out there and be the, the, the prominent missionary to the Gentiles, everyone other than Jews, as a passionate, zealous Jew himself. But I love it because what does this illustrate for us? That God had to intervene. God is sovereign, but God intervened with an idea that began to get planted. God had to change the trajectory of this man's life. And here's what I want us to grasp from the biblical theology concerning these scriptures, right? This section where, where God intervenes in a big way. Here's what I believe we can understand about God. It's God's idea to expand his goodness to everyone. No one else's idea. The source is God himself. Because here's the thing. We can, we can attend church. Like, we can be a part of a, a faith community. And we can begin to, like, convince ourselves of, like, well, this is what our church is doing, right? Well, this is the mission of our church, right? Like, well, this is kind of like the, the season that we're in right now that we feel like God's pushing us. But here's what I want to say. No, no. This isn't a church idea. This isn't a man-made idea. This isn't a Saul having an idea and thinking about God and saying, you know what? I think I'm going to be a missionary and expand the goodness of God beyond Israel, beyond the Old Testament, beyond the Old Covenant, beyond this tight-knit group of people that where it became really exclusive. But it became God's idea to break down those barriers and allow God's grace and power to expand. It's God's idea. 
And it's a matter of whether we choose to join in with his idea or not. It has nothing to do with fancy mission statements or goals or this or that. It has to do with are we going to be people that join in with God's idea. And God's idea is one that expands beyond our regions, our comfortability, and expands to people that look, act, think differently than we do. That's God's idea. And it's amazing how this idea gets illustrated with the life of Paul, somebody who was so radically on the other side of it, right? From a biblical theology, we can understand it's God's idea to expand. The expansion of his kingdom, his power, his grace, the free gift of salvation. Going beyond one little tight-knit piece of geography was his ideal all along. So for us, in light of who God is, how does that translate to us this morning? And this is the question I want to really present us with. How is your life being used to expand God's ideas to the world? How, how's God using you in that? This isn't the responsibility of like, well, we're going to let the pastors do it. We're going to let so-and-so do it because they have a ministry, right? The word ministry simply means this, to serve. Everyone can have a simple role in God's kingdom, power, grace, and plan and how he wants to transform the world by just simply saying yes in the same way that Stephen and Philip said yes to simple things. And God began to expand their ministry, expand their capabilities, expand their influence simply by what he's done. But how is your life being used to expand God's ideas to the world? It takes activity. It takes active and genuine grace. At this point in the narrative, we're just going to say, okay, we're going to negate anything we've thought about the Bible before. We're going to just focus in on the early church and how this narrative has kind of progressed, right? What examples of active and genuine, genuine grace do we have up to this point? Well, I'll tell you what we have. We have a guy named Stephen who was so passionate and zealous and was filled with so much supernatural boldness that he got people so fired up at him, people that were so religious people that were so far from God's heart, and he was murdered for his faith. There was massive activity and movement where he was being murdered and stoned to death, naked, nude, being thrown at, stones at till he died, and he said, Father, forgive them. This is my family. There's grace. You think about Philip. You think about a people group that were hated, the Samaritans. Literally, Jews thought these people were the scum of the earth. And how did he actively allow grace to come forth through his life? He went to those very people and allowed grace to burst forth. He told them about what God was doing and invited them into the same promise and process that he was in because he tasted and saw that the Lord was good. He went to an Ethiopian eunuch and crossed barriers that he probably shouldn't have crossed. Here's my point this morning. Our faith has to be one of activity. Passive faith does nothing for our world. Expansion requires activity. We can have passive good ideas about justice in our life and in our heart. That's great, but nobody actually ever gets affected by that unless we actually do something. God has called us to be people of activity. And we see that so beautifully illustrated by the early church. The example was we're not going to just stand around but we're actually going to allow God's ideas of expansion get our feet moving. 
We're not going to allow this to be something that allows our faith to be passive. But we're going to be people that move in the right direction of God's grace, his love, and his heart. We are going to be a people of active and genuine grace and not judgment. Show me the judgment in the life of someone like Stephen or Philip. Show me that. Up to this point in the biblical narrative, what do we see as people are practically allowing God's grace to expand in their life? We see an active and passionate grace and love being expanded to people that are way different than they were. Passive behavior does not change the world. We have been called to be people that actively expand God's grace. Amen? Acts chapter 9, 7 through 9, we're going to finish off with this this morning. It says, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. So these guys are kind of left out in terms of this personal experience that's happening with this passionate and zealous leader for God. And his life's getting flipped upside down. And verse 8 says, Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So here's what we know is that Saul's response based on this section of scripture is one where first off he obeys. He obeys by moving towards the city which God has ca had called him to. We don't know that in between the scriptures but we know that his trajectory is in a direction that affirms what God was calling him into. But we also know that he refuses to eat or drink. And you might say, well, what is, why didn't he eat or drink? You know, was it because he was blind or whatever? It's interesting during this time, what culturally constituted not eating or drinking was usually a time of mourning or repentance. Well, commonly Jewish people were like, hey, I, I abstain from eating foods uh, because I, I know that I'm in a season where I want my life to be dedicated to God. As a church, we do this. We, we fast. We do a week-long fast. Um, and we just use that as a week to say, you know what, we're going to deny ourselves to specific things. For some people, that's food. For some people, that's other things. For me, it was my cell phone since I was addicted to it. You know what I mean? And uh, so anyway, you purge the things out of your life that are getting in the way from your focus on God. So we understand that Paul takes a response by saying, what have I done? Right? This response where his world is being flipped upside down. So we see Saul's response of being one of obedience, of being one of mourning and repenting by abstaining from all these different things as he's on his way, as he's been blinded from actually seeing, right? What can we glean in terms of a biblical theology from this last little section here? This is what I think we can really glean from it in understanding the outcome, of understanding that this was a personal experience for Saul. And these other guys, yeah, they knew something was going on, but they weren't having the same experience. We can claim a biblical theology that God chooses whom he wills. He does. God is the author. God is sovereign. And in the midst of his sovereignty, God chooses whom he wills. God is in charge. He is. We aren't robots. God is not controlling us in sometimes ways that we express and think. No, but God has given us the gift of free will. But here's what I know. He's, he's in charge. What needs to get accomplished will get accomplished, whether for us it's a yes or it's a no. And here's, here's the thing. God, God chooses whom he wills. God selects certain people. 
Not everybody gets a Saul to Paul type of moment, right? Not everybody gets a, hey, Mary, you've been impregnated by the Holy Spirit type of moment, right? There are special ways we see throughout the Bible that God reveals himself to different people in different ways to get the attention, to make sure that everything happens how it needs to happen in terms of what God wants to accomplish on this earth. God chooses whom he wills. He does. That's why it gets a little dicey in church sometimes when we self-proclaim certain things when we understand that actually God is the one who gives gifts. God is the one who instills those things within us as people. We are just called to be faithful vessels and vehicles of his grace and love. Amen? So how does that affect us? How does that create a theology for us this morning? So I, I really, out of that practicality, want to ask this, this, this last question. Have you made your own ideas on God's way of expansion? Because for some of us in the room, we haven't submitted under the fact that God is in charge. And we think of in our own human capacity and see people and say, this is how I think God's going to expand. This is how I think the church is being burst forth. This is how I think the mission is going to be accomplished. And we've created a God complex where we've gotten in the way of what God is choosing to do as he wills. We've created our own man-made ideas to get in the way of what God truly is accomplishing and how he's stirring and how he's moving and how he's expanding. Have you tried to become God in the way that you view the world? Here's what I love about this story. Saul's conversion proved that anything is possible. This story proves anything's possible with God. Anything's possible in terms of who's a candidate for God's grace. And not only to be a candidate, chosen as a candidate, but to be people that, a people that lead. A pe people that are active. A people that actually have influence. A people that carry and bear the name of Christ and understand with that, man, they got tools in their tool belt that are supernatural, that defy human capabilities, that defy the human natural ways that we think about forgiveness, that we think about love, that we think about the idea of grace, that we think about anything that we can offer anyone else to serve them. But God gifts us with a new capacity, a new life, one that denies ourselves stops being about what can I do for this and begins to outwardly expand our energy in a direction in a way for other people. To serve people beyond a capacity that we have all on our own. God converts and calls a persecutor. He converts and calls a persecutor. This is interesting about the word conversion. It, it, Here's what I want to clarify this morning. He didn't convert from, like, Jew to Christian, right? That's not what happened. He converted in a thought idea. That I don't earn my own righteousness. That I don't work for it. There's nothing religious that I can possibly do. He converted his thoughts. Jesus clarified something. Jesus said, no, 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 you don't earn it. I've done it already. I'm leader. I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. Let me clarify something for you for a second. There's nothing that you can do to earn this free gift that I'm giving to allow freedom in your life. Come on. He converted in his thought process. And he was called onto a mission by God that was very specific in this time, in this place. But who would have thought it would be even be possible? But that's the beauty of God's grace and his love. 
This guy is used in the Bible to be the missionary to the Gentiles. This guy is used in the Bible to end up penning two-thirds of what we call the New Testament. God uses him, inspires him, and allows him to write and pen down encouragements to churches in today what we classify as Scripture simply because he had this interaction with Jesus and what he had done. This guy is being used, and he was a murderer of Christians. Isn't it interesting when we think about this? Who are the candidates? Who are great candidates to be the missionaries to expand beyond the walls of Jerusalem? Well, we've already talked about a few of them. You had Stephen, a guy who was so dedicated to his faith, he died for it. He was trying to explain to the Jewish people, you're missing it, you're missing the heart of God. Come understand that Jesus is this rightful Messiah you've been waiting for, and he's offering a free gift He's done it all for you, and he's moving in a direction that's going to expand beyond the ideals that we've created religiously, these man-made ideas. Stephen, what a great candidate. Why in the world, God, didn't you just kind of meet him in the midst of all of it and send him out to do that? We got another guy like Philip. Man, if anybody's going to be a successful missionary, Philip really met kind of what he needed to meet. He's been given the title of one of the greatest evangelists, right? Philip the evangelist, because he had this gift of expanding God's goodness and his grace to people that were different, the Samaritans, these people that were despised, this person that looked different, had a different culture, this Ethiopian eunuch. Man, this guy meets it. This guy, man, he's a great candidate to be the guy who goes and carries the baton and makes a massive influence on the church of Jesus. But Saul the persecutor is chosen. Isn't that beautiful? Because we've got a lot of tight-knit candidates that we read about in the scripture that really meet everything they need to meet. But God chooses and allows his grace to be shown through a man who is the complete opposite in terms of what we think of Christian candidacy. Whew. Come on, church. We need to understand this morning. I don't care if you've judged somebody else or you're judging yourself and claiming yourself to not be a candidate that's worth anything. God changes that idea upside down. God impacts us in understanding that you have the capacity to be a person of movement, to be an active force in the world that makes a difference and makes a change. God uses anyone to reach everyone. God uses anyone to reach everyone. The difference is, are you willing to be a person that gets down on your face and says, God, I'm willing. I'm really willing for my life not to be about myself, that I would understand that when I progress in maturity, I understand the need for self begins to die more and more, and the need to serve others begins to grow more and more and more, because ultimately that's what you did, and you were the greatest leader. You were the one that led and began and started this whole thing all together by doing something so selfless that catalyzed a new thing on this earth to change the world forever. God uses anyone to get to everyone. Jew, Gentile, enemy, friend of God, whatever status, right, whatever status that you've created in yourself, in your own image, in your own way that you view life, Jesus wants to change that status. 
He wants to change it to child, child of God, freed, forgiven, empowered, overcomer, winner, blessed, forgiver, gracious. Come on. We create all these statuses that we compile on ourselves, but man, when you give your life and you say, God, I'm just an anybody, God begins to allow your life to be an influencer of everybody. God wants to change us. He wants to change our heart this morning. He wants to get rid of every excuse that maybe we've created to understand that we have a capacity to be world changers. And he's proven it and he's illustrated it so beautifully as his church was being expanded that a candidate can be someone who's so far, so different. I don't even know if we have a capacity to think of people in our lives that even look like Saul. And maybe that's the point. Maybe whatever way we've tried to write anybody off and say that there's no plan, that they've reached the level of heinousness, that God's saying, wait a second, don't count me out because I'm sovereign, I'm true, and my mission and my plans will not be thwarted. And here's the beautiful thing. He invites us into a process to help and understand that we can be used in that process as his church. Amen?